I like that Terry Kelly, don't you? I want his hair, personally. <laughs> and that beard is pretty cool, too. I tried to grow a beard, but uh, looked like the wrong end of a rabbit, so I gave that up. <laughs> well, we live possibly in the most beautiful place in the universe, do we not? What a beautiful day we are, we are having. Well, this week we're continuing our series uh, about the book of Esther. Uh, those of you here last weekend uh, will remember that we were talking about Haman last weekend. Now, you know what? Okay, quit that, will you? Uh, for, particularly for guests here, you're probably thinking, it's kind of rude. You know, they're, they're hissing the pastor. You know, that's... that's there's a Jew- the reason they're doing that uh, is there's a Jewish tradition that whenever... Uh, that man's name is mentioned. No, you can't do it unless I say the name, okay? Play by the rules. Uh, whenever that man's name is mentioned, then they hiss. By the way, actually, that they all, I discovered this week, they also have a tradition that they spit, too. <laughs> don't even think about it, all right? Well, a little more than four years have passed by since Esther had become queen, and now we're going to jump into this, Esther chapter 3 and verse 5. Esther 3 verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down, okay, we're done with the hissing already, okay? When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adur. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people, dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money. The king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Uh, You will be uh, stunned and amazed to know that something weird happened to me this uh, week. (laughs) I almost burned my house down. How about that? Yep. Um, We have some tiki torches on our back deck, and uh, being the uh, giftedly practical husband that I am, uh, I decided to top up the tiki torches with that oil and um, everything was fine, but uh, I didn't reckon on the fact that after doing that we had a night of serious rainfall and quite a lot of water got into the tiki torches. Now, how many of us learned in elementary school that oil and water don't mix? How many of us knew that? All right, I missed that day, okay? So we're sitting outside, Kay and I, on the deck, me uh, in my shorts and cowboy boots, and we're, we're out there, and the sun is going down. This is a romantic moment. I said, honey, 
I'll light the tiki torches, shall I? That'll, that'll be great. And she said, that's a nice idea. So I light the torches and we're sitting there and suddenly there is this spluttering, this spitting, this ignition. And then a humongous ball of fire. <laughs> well, not that big, but there was this explosion And this little fireball leapt out of the tiki torch and scattered all over our deck. And suddenly, our deck is on fire. It is a good thing I had my cowboy boots on. Because I'm... I mean, Kay thought I'd taken up line dancing. It was... Everything was peaceful. Sudden ignition. Fire... And chaos. It's exactly what happens here. Mordecai refuses to bow to this newly promoted Haman guy. And as a result of that, there is a sudden ignition that threatens the Holocaust, a Holocaust of the Jewish people. The angry man is is this man Haman. Now, we're going to jump into the bulletin right now because... uh, that outline on the bulletin. I didn't get there for like 20 minutes last week and some of you were really quite disturbed about that. So we're going to jump there right now. Okay, let's look at this guy, Haman, the man who would be king. The man who would be king, Haman. If you look at this story very closely, I propose to you that Haman, his real agenda was that he wanted to be his majesty. He wanted Xerxes out of the way so that he could be king. Now you say, why do you say that? Let me show you. First of all, he is acting with the king's manner. And so there are parallels in the story. Xerxes uh, says to Vashti, his first wife, do this. She doesn't do it. He gets rid of her. Haman says to Mordecai, do this. And he doesn't do it, and he says, I'm going to get rid of you and your people. He is acting in parallel with the attitude uh, of the king. He has a king's wealth, 10,000 talents of silver. More about that later. If you scroll forward to the sixth chapter of Esther, you discover there that Haman tried to negotiate his way into getting a king's uh, robe, a king's horse, a king's seal, and a king's acclaim. It is very obvious that Haman is trying to introduce himself into the public consciousness as royalty. That's perhaps a reason why the rabbis of old throughout history believe that Haman was in on that conspiracy plot that we looked at last weekend to try and assassinate King Xerxes. There is this Very clear sense among the Jewish scholars that this guy wanted to be king. And guess what, everybody? So do we. That is the heart of the problem of the human condition. We want to be king. We want to be king of our own lives. We want to be king sometimes in the lives of others. We want to, we want to take charge. That's why, that's one reason why these baptisms were so significant today because people were going through the baptism because they were publicly declaring to us all from now on 
I publicly own this truth. Jesus is my king. That's why it's so wonderful to see. By the way, if you're a guest with us this morning because of the baptisms, you're here to see family and friends being baptized. We want to give you a warm and special welcome. Why don't we put our hands together and welcome friends here. But you see, this, the baptism and even this text brings, bring us back to this core issue. We want to be king. That's why the key question for humanity, it's there again in the bulletin, the key question for humanity and for us is this. Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Because throughout history, that's always been the issue. In fact, from the beginning of history. The whole episode in the Garden of Eden is about kingship. Adam and Eve wanting to take charge of their own lives. We'll take care of it, thank you God. In Genesis chapter 12, the Tower of Babel scene. People get together. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Today's living version says, let's make a monument for ourselves. We'll build a city in our own honour. That's what kings do. It's all about kingship. When Jesus came, he didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount and just say, straighten up, live a little better, be a little cleaner. No, he got to the heart of the kingship problem in Matthew 6, 33, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, Jesus was saying, it's not just about moral improvement, it's about who's the boss. And then elsewhere in the New Testament, Matthew 20 Salome, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus and says, how about a throne for my boys? I want them to rule. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is sarcastic with the Corinthians. He says, you have become like kings. Over in the book of James, James rebuked those. He rebukes those who, who just completely take their lives into their own hands and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You see, it's all about the issue of kingship. So what are some of the ways that we can tell if we, in our lives and in our relationships, are acting like kings? Let's, let's take a look at that as we look at this wannabe king that is Haman. First of all, first of all kings have a sense of superiority. Kings have a sense of superiority. Uh, Haman, when you look at his words, it's pretty clear the way he talks about the Jews that he has an attitude that says uh, we're superior. More about that in a moment. You should know that there was long-term bad blood between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. Haman was from the line of the Amalekites and way back into Exodus chapter 17, the Hebrews and the Amalekites had been in conflict together. And so there was long-standing prejudice, enmity that existed between these two people groups. It is sad to confess it, but despite the fact that Martin Luther King had a dream, we still wrestle with prejudice. And I hope you will affirm and agree with me that as the people of God, there should be not the slightest hint 
of racial prejudice ever expressed among us. You can nod or say yes or amen if you like. There should be absolutely no hint. And yet it's it's so easy uh, for that to happen. In fact, I've discovered that prejudice tends to go in fashionable trends. Now, I'm going to take a little risk here. Uh, Some of us are aware, are we not, that the current worldwide fashionable trend when it comes to racial prejudice is actually to be anti-American. We're aware of that, right? Some of you are looking at me going, I can't believe you stood up and said that. Don't shoot the messenger, it just happens to be true. And sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm sad and ashamed to confess to you, sometimes prejudice is, is evidenced in the church. Uh, I, I was back in England speaking at a Christian conference and a fellow speaker came up to me. And uh, this is a Christian guy, he's a leader. And he said, hey, Lucas, I, I hear you live in Colorado, in America. And I said, yeah, that's right, Colorado, it's, it's in America. And, and, um, and I, I live there. And he said, how do you stand those people? How do you put up with them? He said, said, they're all crazy. He said, they're stupid. And I said, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't say that. I said, stop right there. Number one, you're talking about my friends and I don't appreciate it. Secondly, delete the word American and insert any other racial group and see how it sounds. All prejudice is unacceptable. And his eyes got big and then I slapped him around a little bit. And no. <laughs> I didn't. But do you see how you felt just now when I said anti-American? It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And prejudice so easily emerges in our hearts. You can see uh, how it develops here. Prejudice, four roots of it. Uh, The first, they're not in any order of priority, but the first one would be, well, they're they're just different from us, aren't they? That was Haman's approach. These Jewish people, they're different. That's always been the foundation of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries. The Jews are different. And that was the accusation that Haman made. And then, uh, by the way, Israel's Anguil says, prejudice is the dislike for all that is unlike. How true that is. Then generalizations, racial generalizations. Yeah, they always... And we make generalizations about people. We lump them all into the same group. And, and, and then there is this sort of sense of superiority. Well, yeah, you know, we're, we're just a bit better, aren't we? No, we're not. We are not better. And I can stand up here and say that because some of us Brits have been pretty good at being arrogant. Now, you can't say that, but I can get away with it. Rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. Oh, give me a break. But there is this subconscious, inherent idea that somehow we're better. And we are not. When we get into generalizations about other people groups, we're better. Oh, by the way, here's a big deal. Well, they're a threat. 
they're a threat. That's, that's the ace card that Haman played. Uh, it's not in your interest, king. These, these, people are, these people are dangerous. My brothers and sisters, be careful of all stereotypical generalizations that attack a broad people group because of the activities of a few. This should not be named among the people of God. And yet too often, fear means that it flourishes among the people of God. I'm glad, I'm glad that Mark Twain said this and not me. He said, prejudice is the swollen envy of pygmy minds. That's blunt. That's blunt. I, I can't believe I'm, I'm being this blunt. That's because prejudice is evil. But we can be subtle about it too, by the way. We can develop subtle prejudices where we generalize about people almost, almost unconsciously. Here's, here's an example. Yep, those bankers, they've ruined the world. No, they haven't. Some bankers have. But you may be in the financial industry and you may be sick and tired of being told that you are the architect of the downfall of the universe. Here's another one. Yep, attorneys. I don't even know whether attorneys are going to be in heaven and if they are, I wish they'd hurry up and get there. But I make you smile to make a point because if you're a hard-working attorney and suddenly you're being smeared because of the inconsistencies of a few in your profession, that can be hurtful. Do we tend to think that we're better, that we're right? Do we tag people? We can say this in our marriages, can't we? By the way, don't nudge each other when I say this, all right? You always... Do we insist that our way is best? Do we have people who can tell us the truth about us? That'll prevent us from being superior. I said to my wife, Kay, this week, <laughs> I said, Honey, am I becoming neurotic? And she laughed. And she said, what do you mean, becoming? <laughs> kings think they're superior. Who can tell us the truth about us? Secondly, kings often rule. Kings often rule by anger and rage. Kings often rule by anger and rage. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Notice this, everybody. Xerxes burned with anger. Chapter 1, verse 12. And Haman was enraged. Anger is a, a big feature of this story. Now, not all anger is wrong. The Bible says in Ephesians, be angry but don't sin. We should be angry about some things. We should be angry about injustice. We should be angry about abuse. There are some things that we need to get angry about, but I'm talking about that unhealthy, unwholesome anger that, that tends to make everything worse. Do you notice that anger demands an exaggerated response to the original offense? Vashti, come here. No, that's it. I divorce you, and I'm going to pass laws for every woman in the land. A little bit over the top, I suggest. 
Mordecai, bow down. I won't. That's it. I'll kill all your people. Do you see how anger exaggerates the response? It makes a private matter between Haman and Mordecai a public matter of national importance. Be careful about anger. If you, if you live just beneath the surface of eruption most of the time, find some help. Hesitate before you speak. Let me, let me give you a little advice I wish I, that they taught me in elementary school. If someone sends you an email that makes you mad, do not press reply for at least 24 hours. Has anyone ever done that? The email comes in and you go, right! That's it! I feel this is righteous indignation. (laughs) And you know that you're about to create chaos because the keyboard is cracking beneath the strain. And it gets heavier and heavier. And then when you press send, you don't press it, you punch it! It normally makes things worse. Is that a pattern in our lives? Thirdly, thirdly, kings, here's a big one for us as Christians, kings sometimes insist that God or the gods are on their side. Kings sometimes suggest that God or the gods are on their side. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. What's all this about? These were very superstitious people, so even mass murder became a matter of consulting the gods. They, they wanted to know that, that somehow God was on their side. Do you know that history is littered with people, including Christian people, who did terrible things and said, God told me. I am fascinated by Henry VIII. You, you heard of Henry VIII, you know. Great love of cheeseburgers and many wives. Henry VIII, if you study him, he was a mixed up, confused guy who mixed up some kind of pseudo-spirituality with his own lustful appetites. When he had Anne Boleyn executed in 1537, he dressed from head to foot in white. He went for a ride down in a boat on the River Thames. They brought in a French swordsman to cut off her head with a sword. Uh, We Brits normally do it the civilized way, with an axe, but they brought him in. And Henry said that the marriage had been birthed in witchcraft because he wanted to be able to say, God told me. Adolf Hitler was raised in a Christian family. Drifted away from his Christianity as an adult, but never outrightly denied it, and wrote in his book, Mein Kampf. And forgive me for these offensive words. Hitler said, I am convinced that I am acting as the agent of our Creator. By fighting off the Jews, I am doing the Lord's work. Nazi stormtroopers went into battle, brothers and sisters with the words, Gott mit uns, inscribed on their belts, God is with us. Now, we look at that, and we think, that's, that's horrifying, we could never do that. And yet, have you ever met Christians who justify everything they do 
by saying God told me. They have a lot of little conversations with God. I mean, a revelation a day keeps the doctor away. And you try to say to them, I'm not sure that's wise. Nope, nope, nope. God told me it's a great way to shut down all conversation. It's a great way to get mad in church. Because you see, one moment you don't like that worship song, but in ten seconds flat, you're saying to yourself, you know what, I hated that song and I have a sense in my heart that God probably hated it too. (laughs) You want to try and win a fight? Drag God into it. And sometimes we can be too quick to do that. A cosmic endorsement of my every preference. Do we... Do we use that? Kings sometimes insist that the gods or God are on their side. Fourthly, and this amazes me, kings will use anything and everything to get their way. They'll use anything and everything to get their way. Haman said to Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. The customs are different from those of all other people. They do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. I read the text again because I, I want us to see just how manipulative Haman was. First of all, he uses lies mingled with truth. That's what manipulative people often do. The Jews are scattered. True. They have different laws. Half true. They don't obey imperial law. Wrong. It's just that Mordecai didn't bow. See, that's what propaganda is. Half-truth. Bit of truth scattered in with all kinds of exaggerations and lies. Then he uses his financial uh, uh, accumulation. 375 tons of silver. It's staggering. That's two-thirds of the entire income of the whole Persian Empire for a year. This guy is a multi-billionaire who's ready to write the check to get his way. And then, you know what's sickening about this? He's so pious about it. He says, your highness, it's, it's not in your interest. Give me a break. He's not worried about Xerxes' interest. He's concerned about his own. But you see, manip- manipulative people do that. They say, well, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not my opinion. I, I just... And we can cover up manipulation by pious words. And Xerxes, frankly, is pretty, he's useless. He takes off his signet ring. Why does he do that? Well, the signet ring in Near Eastern culture was used to stamp a legal document. In this case, a, a, a certificate of death. Uh, that's why the prodigal son was given a signet ring when he came home. He's restored into authority. And this Xerxes, he's pathetic. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? Doesn't it irritate you when they say that one word that I have come to fear? Whatever. <laughs> How many know what I'm talking about? Whatever. It normally comes with a facial gesture and a hand. Like It goes like this. Whatever. Uh, King, I want everyone, including those back in Jerusalem, because that it would have, have been affected by this too. I want them all killed. Whatever. 
Do what you like. Don't even give me the money. I don't, I, don't worry about that. Just do what you want. Reminds me of Stalin. It's said that between 15 to 30 million people died directly or indirectly because of Stalin. And when he was signing yet more death certificates, Stalin said, who's going to remember all this riffraff in 10 or 20 years' time? No one. Whatever. Haman's work of manipulation has been done. I've met people who are kind of proud of their skills in manipulation. Yeah, I've, I've got a wrap around my little finger. I, I know what buttons to press. It's how kings act. When they want to get their way. Well, the final thing I want us to talk about this morning in this message is the real king who is worthy to rule over our lives. The suffering servant, that is Jesus. You see, this Jesus came and he healed the sick, cast out evil powers, raised the dead, taught us how to live. And then, ladies and gentlemen, they took him and they put him on a cross. And they put a sign over his head that included a word. King. King. King of the Jews. You see, he exemplifies what true kingship should be. Sacrifice. Love. Service, giving. And again, I come back to those moments in our baptisms earlier, for those of you who are in this auditorium. Those people following King Jesus because they discovered that he's worth it. He is worthy of our allegiance. We read in Philippians chapter 2, just look at these words with me as I close. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today, because as we have been confronted with a character, a wannabe king, we realize today, Lord, that that's the issue for us so often. We want to take charge ourselves and so often get ourselves in such dire straits when we do. For any here today who don't know you as king, we pray in this moment now that you will cause a change of heart and I want to say to every person here today in this auditorium in the south, if you don't know Jesus as your king, why don't you ask him to take charge now? Why don't you invite him? Why don't you willingly bow the knee of your heart?
to him. Ask him to forgive you and save you and become the one who rules and reigns. That's what a Christian is, someone who's made that choice. If you're making that decision now, then please know that our prayer team will be available at the end of this service. If We'd love to pray with you about that. We're going to pray again in just a moment, but can I ask you just to sit up with me for a moment, please? If you take your bulletin, you'll notice that at the bottom of it, on the bottom right-hand side of that back page, there's a space for a signature three times. You're thinking, what's that about? Well, when you surrender to a king, the usual thing is you sign a declaration of surrender. It's a limited analogy because we don't, we don't surrender to a hostile army or force. We surrender to the love of God. But the reason I put that there is because this week I'd like you to use that bulletin and maybe pray and say, God, show me where I have, where I have decided that you're not going to be king of that area of my life. I, I bring that back under your lordship. If you're one of those who's making a decision to become a Christian today, you can use this too. Just sign your name as a reminder, as a declaration. Tuesday afternoon, Thursday night, you're thinking, God, where are you not king? Think about it. Surrender. Sign. You don't have to give the paper to anybody else. It's for you. Put it in your Bible. Something to remember. Let's pray again one more time. Lord, as we, as we take that challenge home with us, we pray that this week that you will speak to us and show us where we need to enthrone you once more. We agree together in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. We go now with the Lord Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, in our hearts. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, wear cowboy boots. It could save your house. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we'd love to do that.